his story is it's a text on what uh, an ambitious young talented black person could accomplish within the constraints the racist constraints of american society welcome to the vermont conversation i'm david goodman each year on april 15th major league baseball celebrates jackie robinson day with ceremonies in every ballpark in america It marks the day in 1947 when Jackie Robinson took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers, becoming the first African-American to play professional ball, and thus endings baseball's color barrier. Robinson has become an icon, his number 42 retired in every ballpark, to honor his trailblazing feat in both sports and racial justice. But we recently learned that another African-American ballplayer nearly broke baseball's color barrier more than 40 years before Jackie Robinson. His name was William Clarence Matthews. He was a standout baseball player for Harvard, and he was on the verge of playing for the Boston Nationals, a professional baseball team with a woeful record. The year was 1905. Matthew's remarkable story was told in a lengthy article on MLB.com last week. The article is based on the research of Vermont baseball historian Carl Lindholm, who's at work on a book about Matthews. Lindholm is Emeritus Dean of Advising and Assistant Professor of American Studies at Middlebury College. I began by asking Lindholm to tell us who William Clarence Matthews was. William Clarence Matthews, I contend was the best college baseball player in the country at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, He played on the best college team, Harvard College, at a time when baseball was at its absolute apex. It was, the country was baseball mad. Um, There there were not the same kind of uh, uh, you know, panoply of sporting op- alternatives then, uh, horse racing, college football, uh, rowing, uh, but baseball was absolute king. And co- college uh, baseball players, I mean, it was an interesting dichotomy. Most of the teams had, uh, and this has been in some of the great movies too, they had a collection of of country boys who had had no very little education and college boys uh, who came walked right off the campus onto a, a major league nine and without question William Clarence Matthews would have been one of those players who would have finished his college baseball career and walked onto a major league team but he had one drawback that precluded that and that of course was his skin color he was black Harvard uh, um, was one of the very few few schools in the Ivy League that uh, enrolled black students. Uh, When Matthews was there from 1901 to 1905, there were 23 black students at Harvard, 17 undergraduates. Uh, He he had prepared, and we may wanna get into this a bit at Phillips Andover Academy, though he was from Selma, Alabama and had gone to Tuskegee Institute uh, before that. and Andover sent most of their boys to Yale. They're at great athletes. And Harvard and Yale were the Michigan and Ohio State of college sports at the turn of that century. And uh, Andover sent their boys to Yale and Exeter sent their boys to Harvard, but 
Matthews went to Harvard because Yale wasn't entertaining black students and certainly not Princeton. So Harvard gave him the opportunity. I mean, the fact that he was sort of the best known schoolboy baseball player in the region was uh, not lost on Harvard. And he so, actually played there for four years, which was unusual because there are only 12 or 14 players on the team and the roster changed quite a bit from year to year. The color line was very much alive and well in professional sports. Uh, and and I researched this. The color line uh, was broken in pro football in 1946, in pro basketball in November 47. Uh, in the National Hockey League, it took until January 1958. But of course, uh, the most legendary breaking the color line was Jackie Robinson in April 1947. So what was it with college ball uh, that was allowed to be integrated? Well, it wasn't very integrated. And it was only integrated in certain parts of the country. Um, small colleges uh, uh, like uh, Middlebury and Bates and Amherst and so forth had occasionally a black student. So, uh, I think it's probably because they didn't have national constituencies, you know, they could get away with it. Uh, in fact, took pride in it in some cases, but uh, was not integrated in any, any very co comprehensive sense of the term. I want to go to this uh, idea that William Clarence Matthews could have broken the baseball color line uh, over four decades before Jackie Robinson. And this relates to a story that you unearthed in a Boston newspaper from the summer of 1905 about the possibility that a black player might join the team called the Boston Nationals, um, which had a woeful record. What was the deal that the newspaper reported? Well, again, it's a fascinating story. Uh, whether or not it might have been possible for William Clarence Matthews to break the color line, color barrier in 1905, is subject to great, uh, uh, you know, interest. Uh, it would seem so implausible. It would seem so impossible that to even suggest it is, is, is unusual in the extreme. And it's because of Matthew's ability as a baseball player and also his character. He went to Harvard. He went he, he, in Boston. Boston had nine daily newspapers, four of which had circulations of over 100,000. Boston only had 600,000 um, uh, uh, citizens. And, uh, so, you know, two newspapers had 200,000, uh, over 200,000 subscribers. So everybody read three or four newspapers, and they all covered Harvard baseball. So he was... And, and I'm talking about white newspapers, the Guardian, the black newspaper in Boston didn't cover sports. Um, so he was well known in Boston. Now, uh, now he played, we, I hope we get into this. He played his only professional baseball play, well, his, his main professional baseball play was in the Vermont League, the Northern League of Vermont in 1905. Yes, yeah, so let's and that let's, was because, uh, let's we'll go there. there. Uh, well, sure. No, let's let's go there right now. So he 
He does play semi-pro ball in, of all places, Burlington, Vermont. What was that all about? Well, that's because he couldn't play in organized baseball. Teams, the national agreement, there was an understanding among all teams in organized baseball, so-called organized baseball, not to play a black. So there are a number of independent leagues around the country called outlaw leagues because they played people who had, and you see that uh, national agreement teams agreed that they would not hire players who broke their contracts called jumpers, kangaroos sometimes. The Vermont League, the Northern League of Vermont was full of kangaroos because it was an independent league outside the national agreement. They could sign a black if they wanted to. They never had and they never did after that, but they signed Matthews. Now, my understanding is the baseball color line was an unwritten rule. Is that true or was it more formal than that? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. It was formal, but I believe it probably was never in any national agreement literature, you know, uh, the actual uh, documentation. Uh, but if I could, so it was actually during the summer when he was in the Northern League, playing for Burlington, who had won the league the year before and won the league the next year. It was a six-year phenomenon, the Northern League, 1901 to 1906. Um, um, uh, he, uh, uh, I forgot where I was going, but the, oh, I, it was during that summer in July when it was, the news was broken that the Boston National League team was interested in Matthews. It was while he was playing uh, for Burlington that that came out. Um, so did you, you have suggested that this story that ran in, I believe the newspaper was called the Boston Traveler, Yes. Uh, may have just been done to juice their <laughs> readership. Right. Yeah, that was where I was going a minute ago. And I don't again, again, I don't want to get too too wrapped up in it. But he was a great player. Everybody in the Boston area knew it. Certainly the manager of the Boston National League team knew it. Um, but th what made it also what makes it also interesting is the plausibility factor. The manager of the Boston National Team was a fellow named Fred Tenney who was born in Georgetown, Massachusetts, and went to Brown and was kind of the, the personality and the character of a, of, a, of a ball player and a manager that might be intrigued by this possibility. So it also contributes to its plausibility. Now, The Traveler was not one of the preeminent newspapers, and most of the other newspapers didn't even carry this story. Um, some reported it uh, uh, very uh, sort of obliquely, but The Traveler was a uh, a newspaper that was probably looking for circulation. And uh, so there's that factor too. Uh, so they dangled the prospect that this terrible baseball team could enhance its prospects by hiring the people Bostonians knew was one of the best players, pro or amateur, in the area. Yeah, one of my, the, you know, I, I, as the article you were citing is, I worked for about 10 or 15 years on a biography of Matthews, have about 80,000 words and then quit because I got 10, 10 or 12 articles out of it, some conf national conference presentations. This is now 12 or 13 years ago and just said, that's enough. And then this fellow in the MLB.com finds uh, an article that I had written and, and, uh, and tells this story on this enormous circulation. Uh, is it a platform? Is that my, and, uh, all of a sudden, Matthews, who I had set aside, saying, I did it. 
good enough. Now I have to, I'm, I'm terribly old, and now I have to pick the biography up and finish the damn thing because uh, the details are, are, are just wonderful. How did you uh, get on to this story over two decades oh, ago? I mean, this is a very obscure bit oh, of baseball it's history. Great. It's great. Um, I'm going to go all the way back, and you may have to get me back here, but I'll try to be. I grew up a baseball-obsessed kid in the 1950s when baseball, again, was huge. And I followed the Boston Red Sox. And so when born in 45, so the excitement of my youth fast following baseball was integration. Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks. And I would say to myself, boy, I hope the Red Sox find one who's good enough to play for them. I had no understanding of racism and what this was all about. So uh, in 1971, a wonderful book was published called Only the Ball Was White, which stays in print by an academic named Robert Peterson. And I read that and I, you know, the scales were lifted from my eyes. I said, I call myself a baseball person, a baseball fan. People have read, I don't know anything about the Negro Leagues. So it became a very, real absorption. In fact, it, at Middlebury, I, I, I was able to teach for credit in the American Studies Department, of course, on the Negro Leagues. Uh, and explain for people who don't know what the Negro Leagues were. Uh, what were they? Well, the Negro Leagues uh, kind of generically refers to black baseball before, while during segregation. The leagues themselves actually existed for about 28 years. 1920, uh, the father of the Negro Leagues, Ruth Foster, put together the Negro National League, followed by the Eastern Colored League. And there are actually seven leagues between 1920 and 1928, because you might imagine they were not terribly stable. The, the Depression was the heyday of the Negro Leagues. But so we talk about the, when you often refer to the Negro Leagues, you're talking about black baseball uh, from when the game was segregated, the color line was drawn, which was in 1888, 1889, to 1947, when Jackie Robinson appeared. Um, uh, so uh, Negro Leagues often refers to that, that era of segregated baseball, but there were actual Negro Leagues from 1920 to 1948. Hmm. And of course, you mentioned the Red Sox, and as a diehard Red Sox fan, um, one of the great stains on the Red Sox history is that they were the last Major League Baseball team to integrate. What took Boston so long? Well, uh, two things, one or, one or the other. One is just an abs adherence to the status quo. You know, Tom Yockey was the manager. He was actually from Michigan, but his money was made in South Carolina. He hired racists. Uh, there certainly was no shortage of racists in, in, in America and in the game. Uh, and, uh, so I, you know, it was the answer is it was racism, pure and simple. And the second is it was the status quo. And uh, uh, Tom Yockey never uttered anything that he, there's a, a guy named Bill Nolan wrote a biography of Yockey and could not find a statement where Yockey made some sort of utterance that was uh, anti-black, unlike some other owners. So it just uh, it was the way things were, <laughs> and, you know, which is not to justify in the least. So the, uh, back to William Clarence Matthews, uh, around 1905 or so, he graduates Harvard, and there's really no place to go at that point, right, with well, his sports. Yes. yes and no. Again, first of all, um, 
it's a chapter in his life. He 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 were, he's there for four years. He has plenty of credits to graduate. He was a real student, but he didn't graduate. Given the he never graduated college. He didn't. No, and that was another. Uh, you know, he didn't graduate from Harvard. He was attended Harvard. He took all those courses, and it's a sad story. And I won't go into it at length, but it's. He came to Harvard from. Uh, he took the entrance exams to get into Harvard from Andover, and he failed math. I can sympathize. So he came to Harvard with a condition. That's what they were called, a condition that he had to pass a math course at Harvard in order to graduate. And he couldn't do it. And counting the times he took tests uh, to, to get rid of the condition and appeals that he made to the a faculty committee, he made seven tries. Uh, so he had plenty of credits to graduate, but not an actual major. But he had had a Harvard education. He had spent his last year, his fourth year at Harvard, taking courses in the Harvard Law School. So across the Charles, Boston University was law school was happy to accept Matthews. So he went to BU Law School. He had gone to Harvard from Alabama, Selma, Alabama, Tuskegee Institute, uh, endorsed by Booker T. Washington, the head of Tuskegee, the famous head of Tuskegee Institute. He went to Harvard in order, or to East, first to Andover, then to Harvard, in order to go back South and teach in the South. He never went back. He stayed in the North. Who could blame him in many ways? But he went to BU Law School and uh, passed the bar in 1908. So he had plenty of alternatives. Uh, you know, he, he had, no, he had, his only baseball alternative, and he had baseball alternatives. There were many black teams that would have loved to have William Clarence Matthews, but they were itinerant, hand to mouth. It was not a good way to make a living. It was a way to make a living if you couldn't do something else. If you're a good player, and you, Matthews had a law degree. So he, uh, he practiced law. It was, he struggled. I mean, it was not easy. And then uh, he was mentored by a guy named William Henry Lewis, who was a great football player, an All-American at Amherst, and then an All-American at Harvard Law School when you could play for more than four years. And Math and Lewis uh, had a government appointment as the assistant district attorney in Massachusetts, a, a federal government appointment by uh, 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 Taft. And when Lewis left that job in 1912, Matthews became the assistant district attorney uh, for Massachusetts. Um, so, he had uh, he had alternatives because of his education, and he and goes that, on to yeah. higher office and becomes uh, the assistant uh, attorney general of the United States. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Much later, and uh, trying to study his life, there's a kind of a dry period during World War One. He did not serve in the military, and then his name starts cropping up again in the national press in 1920 because he's the main attorney for Marcus Garvey, the black nationalist. Imagine that. Matthews had been uh, in, in, uh, at Andover and at Harvard, a member of the Republican Club. He was a staunch Republican. And then um, very quickly, I was trying to find in the Middlebury Library in the letters of Booker T. Washington, the letter to Andover from Washington on behalf of Matthews. Couldn't find anything in the Washington papers, too really obscure. Right underneath that in the Middlebury Library are the collected letters of Marcus Garvey. So I said, what the hell, I'm here in the Middlebury Library. Let me just look in the index. 
And there are hundreds of letters. What is Matthews doing with Garvey? In fact, in all of his autobiographical um, statements to Harvard, every five years at Harvard, you, you update your, your life. He never mentioned this Garvey period, hmm. but he was Garvey's lawyer. And when Garvey uh, went to jail in 1923, um, uh, Matthews attached himself to the Coolidge uh, uh, campaign for president in 1924. Garvey in 1927 said that the reason he went to jail was because his lawyer was in cahoots with the government. I couldn't find any verification for that, but that was Garvey's position. So Matthews goes from representing Garvey to becoming the leader of the colored section, quote unquote, uh, of the of the a Republican Party on behalf of Coolidge. Coolidge wins. Matthews gets a job in the Justice Department. Hmm. Long-winded way of saying, explaining, but there you well, go. and uh, of course, the life of William Clarence Matthews ends much too soon. So, right. uh, talk about when he died. Well. Uh, when he died, it was page one in the black newspapers. And he was 50 51. 51. Just turned 51. He was operating out of San Francisco for the government on a, as a, the, the uh, uh, you know, newspaper accounts uh, said. Uh, he was working on a water adjudication matter in San Francisco. It was back in Washington. Uh, to attend meetings and so forth, and died of a gastric, ulcerated gastric uh, distress um, at 51. He he had married a woman who was his schoolmate at Tuskegee, and they had no children. So he died at uh, at 51. Uh, oh, and the press, uh, the black press, it was page one banner headlines. Hmm. And it was covered in all the significant white papers, too. He was a leader of the race, quote unquote, uh, and especially acknowledged in the black press. But every single one of his eulogies mentioned that his his uh, his athletic exploits at Harvard in baseball and football. What difference would he have made in American society had it in fact come to pass that he entered professional baseball in 1905? How would that have changed the course of history? It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have happened. I don't think it would have happened. I don't think it could have. Ha to be honest, I mean, I would love to speculate. I think uh, there was too much against him. I mean, I. It's so fantastical that it, he was even considered at this time. That it takes Boston, the seat of abolition, and a guy like Tenney to imagine it. It was. It's. You know, and I'm at a loss. It's unimaginable. I don't think it could have happened. Um, uh, it's it's this unique combination of character traits and athletic ability and opportunity, Harvard and so forth, baseball, that made it even, the remarkable thing is that it was even rumored uh, to be happening. So I I don't, I, I haven't allowed myself to, to answer that question because I can't go there. I mean, to say, how would he have altered the court? Baseball being the national pastime, if he had got, I think he would have been run out of the league if Tenney had had the, I mean, I hate to say, it. I mean, I wish I could, I wish I could speculate, uh, uh, you know, with wonderful imagination about 
how America might be different, but I just think there was too much going against him. So is the story of William Clarence Matthews kind of a tragedy of a life sort of deprived of opportunity and cut short? Is it a triumph in some ways? How do you reflect on it? Oh, it's not. It's a, it's he was called when he died, the leader of his race in many different contexts and many different newspapers. He was a national leader. This is why his story is interesting. Uh, he was there were many other black figures of his rank during that time, but it, it was an exceptional rank. So, no, his his story is is I call it a text in what I've written. It's 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 a text on what uh, an ambitious, young, talented black person, man, it had to be a man, of course, during this time, uh, could accomplish within the constraints, the racist constraints of American society. Uh, so, no, it's certainly he was not he was. He was deprived opportunity in the same in the way that all blacks were deprived opportunity at that time. But he surmounted those wicked disadvantages in a way that it puts is, is unusual and commendable and triumphant. Carl Lindholm, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. It was my pleasure, David, and thank you for asking. Carl Lindholm is Emeritus Dean of Advising and Assistant Professor of American Studies at Middlebury College. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.